Hey guys, welcome to the V1 Church Podcast. We're so excited to have you listening with us today, and you're about to hear a great message from our lead pastor, Mike Signorelli. Have you ever felt stuck in the process, like you're not making progress? Well, get ready because we're going to talk about the 10 enemies of process. See you on the other side of this message. Let me just kind of say this. A couple days ago, Gary V, who you all know, God's humble servant, Gary V, uh, Apostle Gary V, released a video about loving the process and going through the process. And I said, man, he's got a prophetic edge. But even though he's got some insights and wisdom, I want to know what the creator of the process thinks about the process. So can I give you scripture and tell you what God thinks about the process today? Now, I do believe in divine appointments, and you know they're true if you're sitting in a movie theater uh, doing church right now, because that's weird for some of you, but I believe that in the next several minutes that something can be revealed to you that could not have been revealed to you any other way, because the Bible teaches that God uses the foolishness of preaching to confound the wise and to do things in this setting right now that cannot happen in any other setting, and that's why it's still happening 2,000 years later after the cross, so I believe that you have something to get out of today and it's going to be awesome. My wife, I want to say this, my wife is preaching her guts out at our Queens location right now and she's amazing and I do have to say my obligatory super hot uh, line, even though you just threw up in your mouth, it's gross, but we love to love each other around here if you haven't felt that already because you got an awkward hug from a single. You know one of those hugs, you're like too far too far. (laughs) But last week, we actually broke an attendance record on Queens in our Queens location. Isn't that amazing? And that church is coming to life. And you know what's really cool is people are meeting. It's like they don't know you exist and you don't know they exist. And when we come together at Easter at the space of Westbury, I just think it's going to be off the charts. Like, I'm like, wow. Okay. Yeah. People are getting excited. Um, What else do I have to say to you? I love you and I missed you. And um, is anyone going to take notes and learn? Because I'm going to try to teach. Now, you know that 86-year-old black Southern Pentecostal inside of me does not want me to teach. It wants me to preach. And I'm going to try to tell him no and say yes to the teacher, okay? And we'll see how long that lasts. (laughs) We're looking at Psalm chapter 23, verse 5. If you have your Bibles, you can follow along. And there's no shame in the table of contents. So Psalm chapter 23, verse 5, written by David, and verse 5 says this. Now, you can write these notes down. Try to get them the best you can because we are going to be talking today about the 10 enemies of process. Ooh. Do it again. Ooh. The 10 enemies of process. Psalm chapter 23, verse 5 says, you, who's you? God. God, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my haters. Do you guys have that version? (laughs) I got mine from the hood. Hood translation. In the presence of my enemies, you anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. Here's the thing today, church. The table is full but he prepares your provision in front of your enemies. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You will eat everything you need to make it through this process, but you will eat it in front of the enemies of that process. We're going there. You guys can shout me down. You can get your hanky out right now and start waving it. There's revival in the air, and it smells like process. 
You have to face your enemies in order to receive at the table that is full of provision for the process. There is provision to get you through this process to your dreams, your visions, your goals, but you will have to eat it in front of the enemies of process. It's funny because theologians and biblical scholars believe that David, the king of Israel, the future king of Israel, wrote this psalm actually before This is like mind blowing to me before he was ever anointed by the prophet Samuel to become king. He also wrote this. They believe wrote this before the the current king Saul was throwing spears and repeatedly trying to kill him. You think you've got a bad boss. Come on now. And before David's son Absalom was actually going to go rogue and not understand spiritual submission and try to rise up against him and and take the whole kingdom. And so what you actually have is this prophetic declaration that David is sitting on the side of the hill, hidden in the obscurity of nobody knowing him, nobody knowing his destiny, nobody knowing he's destined for greatness. And he makes this prophetic declaration. The Lord prepares a table before my enemies. And he wrote that before before he had any enemies. Isn't it just like God to always prepare you for the process? Isn't it just like God to always give you what you need to survive the thing that pulls the greatness out of you? Oh, I'm preaching good today, even if you don't shout me down. (laughs) Somebody say the table is full. Come on, the table is full. You're just going to have to gobble it all up in front of your haters and your enemies and the people who want you to do everything but complete this process you're in. I just feel like somebody's life is on the line right now. Do you feel it? I mean, we're preaching for destiny encounters right now. This is, I'm not playing games. Somebody's notes that they're taking right now are their prophetic declaration for their future because they're coming in here to cancel a suicide. And sometimes suicide just isn't a physical death. It's a death of a dream. And there's going to be somebody canceling a suicide that they're not going to kill the thing which God has placed within until it comes out. Does anyone believe that today? We got 10 enemies of the process. I'm going to read this in no particular order. So when you sit down at the table that God has prepared for you, here's your company. These are the invitations that God sent out. He sent out an invitation to self-pity. And self-pity is going to be staring at you as you are eating at the table that God prepared for you. He sent another invitation out to, to another guy named Fear. And, you know, fear, the world teaches us that fear is a feeling, but the Bible teaches us that fear is a spirit. I have not given you the spirit of fear. So therefore you are entering into spiritual warfare. Are you equipped for it? That's free. Here's another invitation that God sent out to this, to this dinner party that you're having. Counterfeit vision. Counterfeit vision. It's when the vision comes dressed up as good when God called you to great. Here's another invitation. Compromise. Compromise is some of our best friends. He feels he tickles my arm. <laughs> Makes me feel so good when I'm sitting at this table. Here's another one. Shame. Here's another one. And I am going there. You're haters. Some of us wouldn't even be able to survive the comments section of our success. That's also free. Recently, I was looking at a preacher who had a video that got up to half a million views. 
And my initial thought was, man, God, what a privilege to be able to reach people by this medium. You know, Paul wrote letters. That was the technology that was available to him. I believe Paul would be making videos right now, too, right? And I thought to myself, what a privilege to be able to have a video that reaches half a million people with the message of God. Then I clicked on the comments, and every relevant comment was bashing this guy brutally. And I thought to myself, can V1 Church even withstand the hatred we would receive if we went viral? Okay, everyone's saying yes. If you say no, you better just walk out now. <laughs> the, next, the next invitation was sent out to someone named, an enemy to the process named Comfort. Man, don't you love him, though? He's fluffy. <laughs> Whoever you conjured up when I said that, you need to pray for them. The next one is Impatience. Impatience nickname, though, he's sitting at the table, and his nickname is False Starter. Man, today's going to be good. Somebody's, like, realizing that this is going to be your favorite sermon ever. The next one is Inconsistency. And you know what God will do while you're sitting at the table of these enemies? Is he will have you eat faithfulness while you're sitting at the table staring down inconsistency. And here's the last one, Selfishness. Selfishness. All right, you got, you got your notes ready? Self-pity, we're going to start with this. So let's talk about the enemy to the process that God's putting you through. Self-pity is easily the most destructive of non-pharmaceutical narcotics. It's addictive, it gives momentary pleasure, and it separates the victim from reality. How many of you are taking the pill called self-pity? Because as soon as you do it, man, doesn't, doesn't self-pity feel so good? Your eyes roll back and you're like, oh, I just felt sorry for myself and it felt so justifiable. <laughs> I mean, self-pity is the narcotic that separates us from reality before we ever take the physical pill. Oh, man, I'll just say this. It's all right to sit at the, the self-pity pot. Just make sure you flush before you get up. <laughs> Because all, some of you are like, we're, I'm telling you, I'm talking to myself, y'all. I earned this, okay? Some of these things cost me three years of my life. And if you were smart, you'd walk out of here and do it for free in an instant. But you know, let me tell you, I was raised in a trailer park on welfare, paying $15 a month for rent, going through some of the most horrific experiences of life. And then I clawed my way out of that hole and got a degree from a Big Ten university. And I thought that every employer within a 10 mile radius of my house after I got a degree was going to call me first before I filled out an application and offer me a job because when you're poor and you look at middle-class white people that's what you think happens you just get a degree and then they offer you a job and then you get married to somebody and have kids and then you buy a house and then you live happily ever after isn't that what's supposed to happen nobody told me that they don't even hire you with a degree nowadays nobody told me that and I'm like, Julie, do I roll it up and smoke it? Because it has no value. <laughs> now, why do I say that? Because self-pity, I was stuck sitting at the table with this enemy, and I did not want to eat God confidence. I wanted to dine with self-pity. And I had to realize the world doesn't owe me nothing. And I've got every single inch of it and they don't care how many degrees you have you've got to earn it in life right 
This is, this is a good one. Maya Angelou said, self-pity in its early stages is as snug as a feather mattress. Only when it hardens does it become uncomfortable. Self-pity will always harden. I have prepared a table in front of your enemies, but you have to eat God confidence and reject self-pity. Is anyone going to make that decision today? Self-pity is excessive, self-absorbed unhappiness over one's own trouble. Man, singing that song on repeat. Romans chapter 8, verse 6. You can write this down. Paraphrased. It says this. Setting the mind. Because sometimes when you don't have any physical enemies at your table, you've got enemies of the mind. It says this. Setting the mind on the flesh, your own carnal desires, what you want, what you need, how you feel, is hostility towards God. The flesh cannot submit to God, but submitting to the spirit is life and peace. Can anyone use some peace? today submitting to the spirit the spirit is willing but the flesh is come on remind yourself later everything in your head will remind you about your troubles but your spirit will remind you about the goodness of God you ready for number two let's talk about this this dinner party guest named fear Helen Keller said it like this avoiding danger is no safer in the long run than outright exposure. The fearful are caught as often as the bold. The fearful are caught. So let's say you want to keep it in reserve. Let's say you want to play it safe. You have just the same likelihood of being caught up as the bold who run out in front of it. Life is going to happen to all of us. Henry Ford says this, one of the greatest discoveries a man can make, one of his great surprises in life is to find that he can do what he was afraid that he couldn't do. One of the greatest rewards that you will ever have, and fear will not let you partake of this reward, is to actually do the thing that you were convinced wasn't possible for you to do. That's the video that makes you cry when you should be at work, but you're watching videos. (laughs) It's watching someone excel past what they think they can do. And let me read it like this. Psalm chapter 27, verse 1 says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Whom shall I be afraid of? When the Lord is your light, when he's your salvation, when his constant presence is in your life, you have no one or nothing to fear. You are going to actually have to sit at this table, going through the process, eating faith, the evidence of things hoped for, and the substance of things not seen. It's going to look like a scene from Hook, right? And you're going to be eating faith while you're looking at fear. You know, when we were in that transition, and some of you guys saw me get down on my knees and worship God, that's not something I just do on Sunday. You know where I learned that? The very first time I ever got on my knees and to worship God, I was 17 years old and our house was getting ready to be taken away from us because we couldn't make the rent. And I got on my knees like that then with no audience and unprompted, several minutes into me praying, we got a knock at the door and it was a woman who said, I've never really heard the voice of God before, but I heard it now and he told me to drop this check off. I don't know what it's for. Come on. You are going to have to eat faith while you're staring at your dinner party guest named fear. Today's good. Today is good. Today is helping me. Today is helping me. Number three, counterfeit vision. They say a company of wolves is better than a company of wolves in sheep clothing. 
Give me the real thing. I want to face the real thing. Don't go on your first date for dinner. Go on your first date for breakfast. I want to see what you're really like, y'all. I don't want counterfeit vision. I want to see what she looks like at five in the morning. Come on now. I just helped some single person not derail their life with that. If you didn't get anything else, get that. I want the real thing. Is there anyone else? Oh, yeah, this church looks great with all the lights and stuff, but I really want to know. Well, why don't you come on in a little bit deeper and let us show you, right? I want the real thing, and I would rather take the ugly process than the fake product. I would rather have the ugly, smelly stench of the filth and the sweat and the blood and the culmination of feces and all the mess you have to go through to birth a thing than to have a fake product. Give me the real thing. That's why I love New Yorkers. That's partly why I moved here. People are so real. They will cuss you out and tell you, I do hate you. That's a good place to start. It's a company of wolves, not wolves in cheap clothing. I, when we do our membership class, I literally say it's not if me and Julie will fail you as lead pastors, it's when. I just won't do it on purpose like your last pastor did. It's one of those sermons. We're going to be here till three. <laughs> Where did your vision come from? Is it even your own vision? Let me tell you a little bit about David, though. And this is going to blow some of your minds who think that you've known the whole circumstance. According to the customs of the Israeli people, if you had sheep under your stead, it would have actually been the youngest son's responsibility to tend to them. That would be your genetic biological destiny was you are the youngest son. Therefore, you have to watch the sheep. That's what you do. So now let me reframe the story of David getting ready to kill Goliath. Does some of you know where I'm going right now? Because, see, he showed up because his other brothers were in the military. And his other brothers were in the military because they weren't the youngest brother. And they're listening to the taunts of Goliath, but the greatness didn't come out of them when the taunts were heard. See, when you hear the taunts of your enemy, that will reveal whether true greatness is inside of you. How you respond to the voice will determine what's on, on the inside. And what happened was David shows up, shows up to deliver them a brick, coal, oven, fired, roasted pizza. And David shows up to deliver that, give him lunch for the day. And here's the taunts of Goliath and puts on pause his earthly father's destiny for him to pursue his heavenly father's destiny for him. Because every second that you read David killing Goliath, he was not tending the sheep, which means he paused his earthly thing to take on the supernatural destiny. Which means that who, whose dream do you have? Is it a counterfeit vision? I mean, did you go to college because someone in your family, your dad or mom told you that was the thing to do? I mean, what, what are you doing right now with your life? Are you living a counterfeit vision because it's somebody else's pressure on you and not God's power through you? I mean, tell me what is going on. And David had the wherewithal to say, I'll be faithful to those sheep. But when it's time to hit pause to be a giant killer, I'll do what God called me to do. Where did that vision come from? 
The whole story of David and Goliath is a story of stepping away from the natural for the supernatural. And I don't know who I'm talking to right now, but there are some people in my life that never understood why I launched a church, never understood why I travel to speak and why I do what I do. It never made sense to them. No matter what metric of success I measure it by, they always wanted me to stay within the smallness of their own imagination. But I thank God for the boldness of the Holy Spirit that rises up inside of you and says, son, despite all your faults and failures, despite your introversion, I'm going to use you if you'll say yes. Is there anyone else who will follow my yes and say yes? Let's keep going. Number four is compromise. I got to pick up the pace. You guys keep provoking me. Indeed, this is C.S. Lewis. And we love C.S. Lewis here. He's our resident theologian. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one. It's the gentle slope. It's soft underfoot without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Signed, your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. <laughs> the demon assigned to rob you of what God has given you because he exchanged it with the gradual slope. No signposts, no milestones, no twister turns. Matthew chapter 6, verse 24 says, No one, no one can serve two masters. For either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and wealth. That's what the Bible says. Now, what that means to us is not that God will not bless you beyond measure, but he will bless you because you serve him and become a conduit for that blessing. And he will give you influence so that you can become an echo of freedom, not an echo of your own opinion. And God will give you financial resources and wealth and give you those things to steward in your life so that it can come through you, not just so that it can rest coming to you. And I think that what we see here is this, the confusion in your life is always the result of listening to too many voices. Watch this. A vision plus another vision equals division. God has just one singular vision for you. And when you're listening to his voice, there will be no confusion. Now, it might not be what you want to hear. It might not be what you want to do, but there will be a singularity to that message that will produce clarity. Is anyone getting anything out of this? Number five is shame. So you're sitting at this table that he's prepared for you, and one of your guests is named shame. And, and what ha happens is this. God will be serving you up confidence while you are staring shame in the face. Because what happens is this. Shame tells you that you are not allowed to access your future because of what you did in your past. That's what shame says on repeat. Shame says, who are you to do this thing? Shame says, actually, you know what? Shame will rob you of confidence because you'll know the right thing to do. You'll know the right thing to say, but shame will tell you, who are you? How qualified do you think you are to say it because of what you've done? But the Bible says that you will overcome by the word of your testimony and the blood of the lamb. Shame tells you that you can't have your future. And Jesus tells you, I have already won it for you. I am a time traveler standing in your future. I see you victorious. I already saw that you won. I saw that you, that thing that the enemy thought was going to harm you. I have turned it around for your good. David had to deal with shame. First John verse one through nine says, if we confess our sins, if we admit it and say, you know what? I am that thing that shame is saying I am, but that's not all that I am. I'm so much more and I'm 
on a journey and he is faithful to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Micah chapter seven, verse 19 says he will again say that word again. Oh, I love the word again. He will again have compassion on me. He will tread our iniquities under his foot. He will cast our sins into the depths of the sea again. So when shame starts talking again, you can listen to that voice. So you can hear God saying, I'm forgiving you again, too, though. That's the real truth. I'm here with my mercy again. I'm here renewing it again. God wants the opposite of shame in your life. He wants to give you honor. He wants to give you favor. He wants to give you glory because he wants to treat you like his son Jesus because that's the blood that covers you and the image that he sees when he sees you. God sees you as a son. He sees you as a daughter. And he wants to lavish you with favor and open supernatural doors for you. And he wants to usher you into this no shame zone, even though you're sitting in front of an enemy called shame. Number six is haters. I've got an acronym for haters. Okay, you can make a shirt out of this. Are you ready? Having anger towards everyone reaching success. That's what a hater is. Having anger towards everyone reaching success. Everyone. The thing I like about haters is they're equal opportunity haters. <laughs> they hate everyone. And, and no matter how good you do a job, no matter how much you work on it, no matter how transparent and humble you are as an organization, no matter how much you strive for excellence, there are people that their favorite pastime is to hate on stuff. But you know why they do it? Because your success is a mirror for their failure. That's it. And you know how I know that? Because I'm, I'm one of those people that used to hate on everyone all the time. And I built my whole Twitter platform on bashing <laughs> preachers for a living. Literally, hashtag outlaw preacher. And anytime someone got a measure of influence, I attacked them on Twitter. I mean, and, and there came a moment where the Holy Spirit dealt with me and he said, son, you have a father wound in your heart and you are attacking their significance because you feel insignificant and you are attacking what they've accomplished because you feel like a failure. And he began to go to the root, but see, God won't, won't just speak into a thing. He'll follow up that, that spoken word into that situation with an assignment. And so after he spoke into the wound, you know what he told me? I want you to like, heart, comment, and share every single one of their posts and celebrate them until you learn how to celebrate people like I celebrate them. And I said, no, God, that can't, can't possibly be you. <laughs> but I begin to celebrate people's success in the midst of my own personal failure until God showed me that it's only by his grace that they're even allowed to do what they're doing. And it's going to only be by his grace that I'm allowed to do what he called me to do. And let me just tell you this, Ralph Waldo Emerson says this, in this quote, he said that, 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 that every ship has, is a zigzag line of a, of a hundred tracks. 
which means nobody's story is a story of just going straight to your destination. Every single one of us has this winding road of seeming impossibilities, of, of meaningless decisions that we made out of pain or out of the things from our past. And we ask God, how could I possibly make it to and arrive to my destination in time? And his response is always the same. I am God. I stand outside of time and space. And the thing that controls you does not control me. And the thing that would take you a lifetime can take me but a moment. And you will cause yourself to be accelerated into your destiny if you submit to the very one who made time. And in my moments of failure, because some of you will even sit at the table that he's prepared for you before your enemies. And you'll sit at that table and say, okay, I'm ready to try again. And you'll get three days into that new beginning and say, but even if I accomplish something, I can't accomplish enough because I'm too old. I've lost too much time and it's never going to happen. But can I tell you, we serve the God who made time. He holds it in his hand. And everyone that has anger towards everyone reaching success is going to be sitting at the table to watch your success. The only reason why he'd pull a seat up for them is because God has a way of resurrecting you in the same place as you were crucified. Number seven is comfort. The comfort zone is a psychological state in which one feels familiar, safe, and at ease and secure. You can never change your life until you're willing to leave your comfort zone. And any person that you've ever attached value to in leadership is simply somebody who has abandoned comfort over and over and over and over again. That's all it is. They're not smarter than you. This is what you guys can't figure out. You know more than I do, but you've done less with it because I was willing to walk out of the comfort zone and you weren't. That's all it comes down to. And then once you get to one level, comfort comes to you again and says, hey, God wants you to eat discomfort and pain and take the cross on your back and bear your flesh. But here, take this sweet pie that tastes like carrot cake. I love carrot cake. That's what comfort tastes like to me. And he offers you that comfort and you have to reject it again and again. And once we get comfortable in the movie theater, we outgrow it. And then we got to go on to the next thing. And then we outgrow that. And then the only thing left is Nassau Coliseum. And then we all go to heaven. Woo! Proverbs chapter three, verse five says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Say all. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he'll make those paths that seem like they're windy, he'll make them straight through acceleration. Number eight is impatience. The wisest are the ones most annoyed at the loss of time. Do I have any wise people that can say that's me? The wisest people are annoyed at the loss of time, but impatience can cause wise people to do foolish things. Right before your marriage is going to be healed, you'll step out. Right before you are going to get a promotion at, job, at your job, you'll start to grumble and complain and miss out of it. Right before you are getting ready to go from behind the scenes to in front of the scenes, from the backstage to the front stage, you'll exempt yourself because of impatience. And as a matter of fact, one of the most successful strategies in warfare across all history is one simple thing. Wait until the other army grows impatient because in their impatience, they will make mistakes and you can exploit them. The enemy is taunting you with impatience as a military strategy to take you out. 
There's a book called Hind's Feet in High Places, and it says when you wear the weed of impatience in your heart instead of the flower that's called acceptance with joy, you will always find your enemies getting advantage over you. Today, some of you are going to take that advantage away. Number nine is inconsistency. Inconsistency. Don't you just hate that I even mentioned that today? Inconsistency. I'm going to say something convicting for those of you who are mature in the faith or on a journey to maturity in the faith. If you're new to this thing, you are exempt from what I'm about to say. But Spurgeon said, how often have, I hel- have you and I helped to keep sinners easy in their sin by our inconsistency? Had we been true Christians, the wicked man would have often been pricked to the heart and his conscience would have been convicted in him. I don't know about you, but I have a vision for some men who are going to rise up, not perfect men, but men who are submitted to God and going on a journey of maturity. And their very presence is going to be a conviction of those around them that they can obtain another level of purity, that they can obtain another level of a pure conscience in a society where everyone's conscience is being seared. I have a vision of women rising up and our very presence as they come into a room signals that God is with them in a palpable way and that they will not offend the Holy Spirit by giving in to a carnal desire, being empowered by the Holy Spirit to do even that thing. Does anyone believe it? Last one is this, selfishness. At this, enemy, at this table in front of your enemies, you'll see selfishness. Your conscience is the measure of the honesty of your selfishness. Listen. Listen to it carefully. Almost every sinful action ever committed can be traced back to a selfish motive. It's a trait that we hate in other people, but always justify in ourselves. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It doesn't have to give you a list of qualifications or a list of accomplishments. Love is not arrogant. Love isn't rude. It doesn't insist on getting its own way all the time. Love is not irritable. It's not resentful. It doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing. It doesn't rejoice when someone else fails. It doesn't blog about it. It rejoices with the truth. And what's the truth? The truth is the cross demands that we accept the reality that the best is yet to come and the renewal of all things is going to be what we see if we'll surrender to the cross. You know, I'm going to tell you a quick story and we're closing. Julie and I made a very difficult decision several years ago, and it was a decision that had a lot of weight and gravity to it because of the influence that we had with a sphere of people. And we made this decision. And after we made this decision, There were many, 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 many people who didn't understand it, didn't agree with it, didn't think it was the right thing. And it was very embarrassing because these are people that we've served and given our lives to and poured out our lives. And it was just like, man, I thought I had enough credibility for them to trust me now. And we were getting talked about and gossiped and slandered. It was just a very dark time in our life. And you know, it's funny because I said, hey, let's go out. Let's go out for dinner tonight. And me and Julie and and a very young Bella went out for dinner and we came up to the table 
and we're sitting there and you can't make this up. Cause isn't it funny how God has like a sense of humor sometimes and this whole region in this big restaurant, who comes through the door? Every single person who had publicly bashed us, talked about us, try to, you know, give people alternative perspective of what was happening. And then out of this whole place, the server, of course, walks them in, right in front of us at the table, right in front of us. And they're not seated so that they're looking away from us. They literally are, because Julie and I, when we go to the restaurant, we always sit next to each other. They're literally all seating, seated looking at us. And we're looking at them and they're looking at us and I'm like, awkward. <laughs> but you know, while they were looking at us and we were looking at them, the scripture came back to mind. I will prepare a table for you in the presence of your enemies and the provision that you need to make it through this process. It's all there for you. And just like David, before it all came to pass, that prophetic word had been released. And do you know that they didn't get it then? Because I'm going to give you a leadership lesson real quick. If you're two steps ahead of people, you're their leader. But if you're 10 steps ahead of, ahead of them, you're their martyr. Like, let me explain. Right now, we celebrate Martin Luther King. Decades ago, he was so controversial because he wasn't two steps ahead. He was 10 steps ahead calling for a new level of freedom in this nation. And it caused him to be a martyr. Jesus wasn't two steps ahead. He was 10 steps ahead. But how many of you know that as things play out, they'll get it? And all these years later, just within the last two years, individually, people from that table have called me up and said, I'm sorry. I don't know what I was thinking. I, I, I can't believe I was that kind of person. I apologize. And we've made amends. Even one of them, I listen to the podcast every week. And I'm like, praise God, I'm preaching about you next Sunday. <laughs> Would you stand to your feet? There are enemies that you have to the process that God wants to take you through. But I believe that in this room, in this overflow, watching online, are people who are ready to say, God, I'm going to partake of the fullness of all the provision you have for me, the faith, the consistency, empowered by your spirit to make it through. Is there anyone here who says, that's me, I'm going to be that person this time? I'm going all the way. Is there anyone who says, I'm going all the way? Now, is there a church that will cheerlead each other through the process? Is there a church who will say, I will be your greatest cheerleader every single Sunday when I see you show up and surrender to God and go through this process? Can we be that kind of place? Wow, aren't you glad you made it to the end of that message? I know it made me feel like I can get through the process a little bit easier now that I have those 10 tools to fight against those 10 enemies of progress. So do us a favor and help us by giving us a like, subscribe, review, and maybe sharing this message with a friend who you think might need some help going through the process. Until next time, see you next week.